How many of you like college basketball? Who was the best college basketball coach ever? Not even a close second. Not even a close second. John Wooden. He was with UCLA, and he won multiple championships. What was it, nine in a row, something like that? Ten out of 11. It was just ridiculous. It can't imagine ever being done again. What was his secret? Well, if you hear people interviewed about Wooden, you know that he drilled into every one of his players the fundamentals of basketball. And every one of those guys, it was from the freshman year all the way through the senior year, they had a foundation of doing these fundamentals well. And they found, obviously, great success with it. I think for the Christian, it's the same thing. Can we do the fundamentals well? We never get to a point where we say, well, you know, I'm beyond this. It's doing these fundamentals that helps us to continue to grow and to find success in the Christian sense. So we're going to do a series, take a little break from the book of Acts, do a little series about the fundamentals to the Christian faith. I had a meeting this past week with some local teachers, and uh, as we gathered around, we talked about, uh, did this exercise, and you had to talk about things that identify you, one word that identifies you, And then a multiplicity of words that go along with that identifier, and it it could be certain biases or prejudice, but things that people would use to describe that one word. So, for instance, you could put, you know, man or wife or teacher, and then you had had to describe that. So, one person wrote down Christian, and here were the descriptions for Christian, narrow-minded Intolerant, hate-filled. <laughs> As you can imagine, I'm squirming a little in my seat. Not everybody knows I'm a pastor sitting there. And then one brave, kind soul said, how about loving? I'm like, yay, there's one. All right, all right. All right. Now, I know that there are cases in which that reputation is earned. I mean, let's admit that, right? You can't, can't get around it. But in my experience, at least most of the people I hang with, they're not like that. But that aside, the heart of these negative beliefs is the notion that Christians take the Bible literally. And because they take the Bible literally, that means Christians espouse absolute morals. And because Christians espouse absolute morals, that means they are intolerant. And all of this is found to be repugnant. Certainty. Absolute morality. Taking the Bible literally. They are all thrown into the same wretched pot. Wretched according to the culture. And so to be progressive is to eschew certainty, is to deny the Bible's trustworthiness and authority. And the assumption is when you do that, that means you are more tolerant and more loving. Now, 
course, I don't buy any of that. I, I would hope that you don't. I think it's incredibly hypocritical when people talk this way. Why? Because when you say there are no morals, there's nobody, and I mean nobody on this earth, who really believes that. Because everybody lives by some code. Because even these hardcore relativists will turn right around and say, everybody has to be loving. Everybody has to be tolerant. Everybody has to be kind. Well, what are those unless they're absolute morals that they expect everybody to live by? So it's hypocritical to say, we don't believe in morals. Really what they're saying is, we don't like your morals, we like ours better. But here is one quote from John Shook, philosopher at the University of Buffalo. He says it rather boldly when he claims that people of faith have to get rid of certainty and put on humility. He says this, as if those are mutually exclusive. They're not, but he thinks so. He says, certainty has been a loaded gun to the head of humanity for millennia. It's not a safe drug. We are in the middle of a vast social experiment with a dangerous psychological pathology. We need more embracing of doubt, fallibility, and skepticism. Now, if you've come to Christ within the last year or two, you probably realize that, and maybe you can remember if you've known Christ a long time, you remember that you bring to, Christ, to your Christian life expectations from when before you knew Christ, certain attitudes and thoughts that you had. And you see Christians reading their Bible. You might see somebody preach from the Bible. And you're perhaps wondering, how can Christians who believe that the Bible has, you know, absolute morality still be loving and, and, and tolerant at all? I mean, doesn't that just demand that if they believe the Bible, they're going to be arrogant? First of all, let me say that I unapologetically believe that the Bible is true. I believe it's accurate, and I believe it has moral authority in our lives. And by the way, this sermon is not to go into all that, but if you're interested in knowing that, we have a class called Christianity 101 that will go over that. You just call the church office, we'll get you signed up, and you can learn more about that. But it begs the question, let's just, for the sake of argument, assume that the Bible is true. Let's assume it does have moral authority and all that. Why then doesn't everybody believe it? It's a question I often get in my philosophy class. If it's true, why doesn't everybody believe that? Well, first of all, it's just a tad naive to think that because something is true, people are going to automatically fall under that and believe it. Right? I mean, people still think there's a, uh, in fact, they have societies around this, a flat earth society. They still think the earth is flat. There are people who still think Elvis is alive. Doesn't that prove that people will only allow certain things in their cranium and they will keep facts out? Secondly, I would expect the Bible to be rejected by people 
because of the nature of both. The nature of the Bible is that it is, it is God's authoritative revelation to humankind. And the nature of human beings, I submit to you, is not one that is drawn to supreme moral authorities. Now, regarding the nature of the Bible, listen to 2 Timothy 3. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, which is probably telling us you can't be complete without it, all right, equipped for how many good works? Every good work. Now, if we were to paraphrase that, what that means is the Bible tells us what to believe and what not to believe and what to do and what not to do. It has supreme moral authority in our life. And again, most human beings are not naturally attracted to supreme moral authority. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you should be further along in your spiritual progress. You need someone to teach you again the fundamentals, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. I once heard somebody say solid food is food you chew on your own. You get it yourself. Milk is food that's already been chewed and has to be given to you. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There are some folks who cannot hear the challenge and the authority of Scripture because they have yet submitted themselves to a holy God. And they will, in defiance, reject the idea to the point of atheism because I do not want to sit under this moral authority that seems plain to other people with their eyes open in terms of the human conscience and and nature, that there's a God All of these things, but we reject that because they've yet to submit to God. So what they do when it comes to the Bible, and many Christians will do this, they just want the encouraging stuff, the easy stuff. Solid food is is a taste that requires some training. It's an acquired taste. And the result is, You don't get near as confused when you eat solid food. You can discern good from evil. I mean, if you looked at our culture, you'd have to say, they don't know the difference between good and evil, and it's because we've rejected the word of God. So we have to resist the philosophies and the tendencies that deny God's authoritative word speaking into our lives. And I think Romans 12, 2 has something to say about that, that you reject the world's thing. You have to kind of retrain your mind to think the way that God would have us think. And 
in accordance to reality of how the world really works with its moral principles. I think if we just got down on a, on a lesser level, on a human level, could we not see that we are naturally not attracted to anybody who claims to have the moral authority? All of us can relate to this, I think. Uh, I mean, when is the last time you've heard a spouse say, I love having my spouse tell me what to do? (laughs) Never, right? When's the last time you heard a teenager tell his or her parents, thank you, mom and dad, for all of your rules. I love them. When's the last time you heard somebody stand before a judge and say, I'm thankful for the law that is there to protect me and to protect our society? In the words of the author of Hebrews, we need to be skilled in the word of righteousness. The need of the hour is just that. For Christians to be skilled in the word of righteousness and to get back the fundamental of studying the Word of God. And what I mean by that is something rather simple. To read a passage, to do whatever it takes to understand that passage, and then to meditate and think about how that passage applies to me. It's really not complicated. And by the way, there's a multitude of internet tools that can help you do this now for free, like Bible commentaries, Bible dictionaries. So we have all of the resources at our disposal. Now, in in terms of methodology, I don't want to just sit here and say this is the only way you can do it. There's a multitude of ways that we can approach the Bible. Now, for me personally, I have basically two different methods. I have one method for uh, studying for a sermon And I'm not going to go through all that with you. It gets rather geeky, but I love being geeky about studying the Bible and studying the Word. And if you want to have that conversation, that would be great. But the second part is how we can read the Bible in a more natural way. And and for me, what I like is being on a year plan to read through the Bible. And the the course that I take is that I, I choose a a system where you read like four different sections of the Bible on a a particular day, and with that you can get through the Bible in a year. Uh, Let's face it, you start getting into Deuteronomy and and, and Leviticus and Numbers, it's like, ugh, I'm done, okay? So at least this way it breaks it up, right? Just being honest, all right? Love every part of the word, it needs to be there, but, you know, parts strike you as boring. Can you believe a pastor just said that? I did, So I I take that, and then what I do is I will journal what I read. And I'll take, for instance, I used to take a hardback journal, and I had stacks of them. Now I use my iPad or my um, MacBook, uh, use all those. And I use a particular program that actually is a cross-format in every one of those things, and I can write down my thoughts, questions I might have, um, um, insights, and all that. And so it's all in one, one section, and then I'll have a prayer list that goes along with that, praying for friends, family, uh, the, the church, and all that's together, and that constitutes my time with the Lord each and every day. Now, you don't have to use that exact system. There are other systems that you can use, 
The point is, you need to do something that will engage your mind and heart. And, and having a particular system is, I think, important because it provides structure and it keeps our mind and hearts engaged in learning the Word. Now, the fact is, is that whenever the term Bible study comes up, there's a certain glossiness that comes over most Christians' eyes. There's a sense of kind of intimidation. And it's like, oh, that's for other people, but not for me. I mean, did you know, you think, I got C's and D's in high school. By the way, welcome to the club. And so you think you're not cut out for Bible study. Listen, studying the Bible is not based on your IQ. It's based on your HQ, your heart quotient. If you desire to know God, you have a passion for knowing God, studying the Bible will be right up your alley. It's all about what I need to grow in this relationship with God and what God has provided for me. It's not too unlike if you have an encounter with a friend or maybe you have a date and you're going out for a meal. And maybe you've seen one couple like this where you're eating, you're having a conversation, you look over at the side and usually they're older and for an hour they don't say a word to one another, right? There are some couples that are like that. Or it could be another couple in which they talk about the weather and sports for the whole hour. Nothing wrong with talking about weather and sports, but the conversation never gets beyond that kind of surface level. That's another kind of relationship you could have. Or you could have one person doing all of the talking. And so there's really no reciprocal aspect to the relationship. Or you could have two people who are genuinely interested in one another. They face each other eyeball to eyeball. They ask good questions. They listen. They share their fears, their aspirations, and there are, there are great moments of, of spiritual and emotional intimacy because of the conversation. And listen. Is not our relationship with God much like that? I mean, you have people where there's not been any conversation for a long time. You have others in which there's been kind of a, a surface kind of relationship. You have others where it's just one way. They're not really listening to God. They're just telling God what they want, right? And then there are those who have a deep desire to know the God of the universe. And listen, the Bible is God's revelation to humankind so that we can have just that kind of relationship with him. Do people only with a high IQ have deep friendships? Of course not, right? So why would it be any different with God? It's not about what your GPA was. It's about your desire to know him. That's it. Studying God's word means you read it, you seek to understand it, and you seek to apply it, and you do not need a PhD for that. You need an open Bible 
and an open heart. So let's just talk about why studying the Bible would be beneficial. Number one, we need to read and study the Word of God for spiritual growth. 2 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So if a baby is deprived of food, it will starve. And if a Christian does not feed on the word of God, they will atrophy. They will be of little use in the kingdom of God. Jeremiah said it this way, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jeremiah 15, 16. When we receive God's word for sustenance because we want to know him, there is great joy that is found because of that. It's like sitting down to just a a great, satisfying meal, right? Right now I'm dreaming of ribs for some reason, but all right, that's for another day. Next, we need to read and study the word of God for spiritual victory. There is not a person in this room who does not struggle with sin. You're looking at the chief of them. Pride, arrogance, lust, greed, every one of us have a long list of things we are trying to work our way through. And whatever your particular list is, Let's let the psalmist David tell us about one indispensable tool. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is no such thing as a godly man or woman who disregards the word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 119.9? By guarding it according to your word. Satan is alive and well. He tempts us. He deceives lives to us. How can we gain victory over Satan in these times? Ephesians 6, 11 and 17 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. You've heard me talk about this before, that the, the Greek word for sword, you can have two words. One is kind of a, a big kind of sword, like a machete, and another means like a small dagger that applies to a specific spot. It's the dagger Greek word that is used here. That's what the Word of God does. God takes a specific scripture and applies it to us in a particular situation. It is just what we needed in the moment. God knows exactly as we pour over the scripture. He knows how to apply it and use it to our hearts. We could say it this way, that if your your mind and your heart are like hardware in a computer, then you need to upload the software to run it. And the Bible is the top 
software system to run the mind and heart of the believer. Next is we need to read and study the word of God to serve God well. The Bible makes it clear that when all of us come to, the, to Christ, we're placed in the kingdom of God. We are on mission to serve God in using our gifts. And our mission is given to us by God to see the kingdom of, of God grow and to be strengthened because of our participation and service. Paul wrote to a young pastor and said, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ. How? Being trained in the words of the faith. There's a definite article in front of the faith. That means the doctrines, the word of God, the faith. And of the good doctrine that you have followed. It's the word of God being before people. It's us being trained in the word of God that makes us a good servant. There is no such thing as serving God well without the Word of God. Listen, there are plenty of Christians who are greatly discouraged by their service. Maybe they were hurt. Maybe it was a volunteer. Maybe it was in a vocational position. And there are deep wounds because of their service that they gave. If you fit in that category, let me tell you this. There is no healing. There is no getting back to serving where you should be in the kingdom without feeding on the word of God. That may not be the only thing, but you're not going to get there without the word of God. Want to hear some great words for success in your service to Christ? Here they are. Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Lastly, we need to read and study the Bible for spiritual blessing, for spiritual blessing. Having earlier in my life, knowing from my own experience how I tried to be happy by success, money, working 70-hour work weeks, trying to uh, continue a business, seeking that elusive brass ring, I can tell you there's a big difference between happiness that temporary thing where circumstances, you know, align, which, by the way, is an unrealistic expectation for any of us. Big difference between that and blessing, which is a deep and abiding joy that we have because of our connection with Christ. And see, one thing about reading the Bible and studying the Bible is that we learn God's disposition for us. With God, we know that his disposition toward us is always grace and mercy. There's unconditional love, and it's easy to forget that. And so as we read the word, we're learning more and being reminded of God's disposition toward us. It's why the psalmist wrote this. Blessed is the man, and again, 
deep abiding joy kind of blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice, by the way, the progression of what takes place here. You, you see a man walking, then standing, listening more intently, finally sitting comfortably with the way of the world. Instead of that, this psalmist says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. It's on my heart. It's on my mind. I'm letting God filter. I've got got an important decision to make. I'm going to see, what does the word of God say about that? I've got a relationship I may be thinking about getting into. What does, does God's word give me any information there that would help me? Maybe got a big purchase to make, business decision. How can the word of God guide me? Yeah, the, the word of God can apply to any situation. Dear brothers and sisters, we're to, we're to study and to drink in and to abide in the word of God, to experience the richest of blessings that God has for us, to experience spiritual victory, to have God's direction, to have him prepare us to be better servants and to grow. You don't have to take my particular format. Read it, do whatever it takes to understand it, and think about, meditate on how it applies. You do that consistently, and this will be the graph of your spiritual life. You can take that to the bank. Let's pray.